Let's do it. All right. So how did you get involved with training exotic animals? All right. So uh, my interest was there already, but I'm like a an, an marine mammal person. So when I got from school, I was doing a practical training in a zoo in the Netherlands. And luckily for me, they kept me after um, after I graduated. So I, I stayed with sea lions at that point. Um, then I started to travel the world a little bit where I work with multiple exotic marine mammals such as dolphins, killer whales, belugas and such. Till I came to Sweden where I now am the animal training coordinator and I'm training all of the exotic animals in the zoo. So very quick rundown for you. So what made you want to specialize in marine mammals? Um, there was just a particular passion. I don't know. I remember that when I was uh, 10 years old, I, I looked and I was just like, yeah, I thought that's it. Sorry, you, you cut out for a second there. I, what was that? You When you were 10 years old, you what, sorry? When I was 10 years old, I was like, you know, I saw some photos of marine mammals and I thought, yeah, well, that's it. That's what I want to do. Oh, amazing. So what animals did you work with before you kind of went into marine mammals? Um, actually, um, I, I didn't have any animals at home except my um, little brother and my little sister, if you call them that way but <laughs> no only my family no f- not any other animal than that <laughs> when i was uh when i was uh, listening to your podcast with ryan you said you'd you worked with dogs a little bit beforehand didn't you it was just um it was just in school really we had we had just a class that where my teacher brought her dog in and and then we would learn about the training that she did but that was really it nothing special yeah, this- it's really interesting, I think, because this is the first time I've I've done a podcast with someone that isn't really involved with the dog world. But I think it's really cool to kind of get a different perspective on it. And when you go back and you look at the history of animal training, it seemed to have really started with marine mammals. Or, or marine mammals were quite early on, weren't they? I mean, maybe after rats. But, uh, Ooh, yeah. you know, when you... You know... Sorry. You know, that's a funny thing that you that you mentioned this because I've been looking in it too, and then I see, you know, especially with with the dogs clickers these days. When you go all the way back, there was a, was a lady uh, Karen Pryor who who started with with dolphins in Sea Life Park, who she started to build up, and that's where she used uh, dog whistles, yeah, like the whistles what we are using with marine mammals, and, and those whistles been been brought over to the dog world at one point, and from there uh, the dog world went into the clickers, the whistles, and you name it all. So it 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 kind of came from her. She uh, she used a lot of uh, Mr. Skinner's uh, techniques, obviously, and a lot of uh, things from uh, Pavlov as well. But she really extended the training part. I would say. So, yeah, it kind of came from marine mammals, I think. You're right. Yeah, so Karen Pryor's book, Don't Shoot the Dog, is super famous in the dog training world. And most dog trainers that you speak to would have read that book. And for me, actually, that book was a bit of a game changer because before that, I was I was involved with the kind of more traditional training. And, you know, you have to be the pack leader and all this kind of stuff. And then after kind of getting in arguments with people, when pe- people keep saying, you have to read Don't Shoot the Dog... I decided I'd check it out, I'd read it, and then, you know, within a few chapters, I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm going to get it all wrong. Um, and that really opened up a whole new world for me. So that book was, I think, a big game changer for a lot of people. Right, right. Yeah, you know what? 
I, I have read the book as well. And then there's another book I found extremely interesting, but that's more marine mammal based. That is A Lads Before the Wind. And she, that's also a book from Karen Pryor where she explains her journey from starting Sea Life Park and all the challenges she had on the way, on the uh, training part, on the employee part, on the, the, the general managing part. It's an extremely interesting book because she talks through it with a storyline where she where she really pinpoints some training strategies that she used and discovered how they would work with dolphins in that case. It's a very cool book if you, if you have a chance to read it. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I've not read it. Um, I guess... Yeah, I, I, guess I just haven't got around to reading that one because Karen Price wrote a few books. She did bring out uh, autobiography recently, didn't she? I think. Yes. That's within the last couple of years. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, do you, as as a, an exotic animal trainer, do you read much uh, on the dog training stuff, or, or are you more specific in reading sources that come from kind of the zoo world? You know, I'm I'm. It- you're actually one of the first people who asked me this, but um, I, I personally think all the science works the same way. It's just if you work with a dog or a tiger, the the, the, the species-specific behavior might differ um, between those species. But what I'm reading a lot, I'm reading a lot of books, like, for example, you have a book that's called Drive, and that's about people's motivation, why people do certain things. Um, I have a book about curiosity, how curiosity works with people. And the, the, the only thing that I'm trying to do is reading those books and reflect that back to the animals. Would that be the same with the animals? Could we trigger curiosity in animals, what we do with each other? Could we trigger a certain drive or motivation that triggers an animal to go, fur- um, to go further than? And that's what I'm trying to do all the time. So I don't read too many training books anymore it's more certain psychology books where i'm trying to ask myself the why question especially if it's about humans can't we do this with animals and if so why wouldn't animals be this way so that's kind of what i do although i'm i'm starting to be more and more interested in also how, how dogs work because it's believe it or not even that training is training dogs are still very new to me well, that's really interesting. I've never heard someone else say that, but I do quite a similar thing as well. Uh, one of the books that was a bit of a game changer for me and kind of like uh, gave me a lot of ideas was The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Okay. Have you heard of that one? Uh, no, I didn't. It's, it's aimed at people as well, but yeah, you're right. You know, if you start reading some of the books that are based on people, then you can definitely take information that way. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you as well, because there are going to be concepts and ideas that are probably quite normal for you that haven't maybe crossed over to our world, I think. It seems like a lot of the stuff that was really pioneered in the zoo training world takes a little while longer to get over to the dog training world. You know, like some of the care stuff that that has been normal in the zoo training world for a while now is starting to become really big in the dog training world. But it's not really new information. It's just new to us. You know... Um, so, to be honest, I've been doing, I've been trying to do some research on this, how the zoo world works. Like, uh, I discover more and more that the zoo world is based in subcultures. So, we have the marine mammal culture, we have the birds of prey culture, like the falconry, we have the 
the protective contact or free contact culture with elephants. You have the the open contact with cats culture. Yeah, there are so many cultures in the zoo world itself that it's like, you know what? If we just everything under one line, and that's just, you know, upland conditioning, just the ABC part, then we should not have cultures anymore. So, and then you discover from there as well that, that you know, in America, they train a lot of things. So it's, it's very cool to see. In, in Asia, they actually train quite some things too. And then in Europe, there are certain countries, they don't really see the necessity to train, like, medical behaviors and such for the animals in the zoo. So, there are places in Europe who are very far behind compared to our other side of the world um, colleagues. So, but what you see, if, if I look at it further with the, with the zoo world, what we are trying to do a lot, we train for efficiency and for the medical procedures very, very much. What you see with dogs is people teach their dogs like uh, a lot of behaviors, like dancing with the dogs. You see the fly ball, you see the, you know, the obedience things, you see so many cool things, but the vet stories and the medical stories seem to be very new for dog owners. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of strange and it probably seems really backwards for you because you start with the medical stuff, whereas we seem to start, you know, people train a lot of like pet obedience style stuff. And for maybe, you know, for the vast majority of dog owners, they never really get to the point where they're doing the vet stuff but then their dogs are freaking out when they take them to to the vet surgeon. Right. But that's that's the thing a little bit. We see it a little bit here in the zoo uh, as well. But people like to train spin-arounds. People like to train roll-over. People like to train, um, you know, swim fast or jump or, or run fast, all these things. But, you know, what we forget is that, um, and this is a, a big challenge for me in the zoo here, we have groups of animals with, with not so many trainers what... Um, what is fairly challenging, but certainly not impossible, where we have to think about, okay, there's one trainer, and that trainer will have 10 animals under its wing in one training session. How can we solve this and make it easier so we can have these in, this individual reach? That's a big challenge what we have. And then afterwards, we're going to think about, you know, what can we train now to, 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 to not... Um, uh, to not uh, put them on a narcos anymore. What can we train to help these animals out and, and just, like, get the blood samples and you name it all. If we have this, let's train a spin around, a lie down, and you name it all. So, like you say, it's it's very fairly the opposite of the of the dog world, really. Yeah, I guess that comes down to just kind of prioritizing what you train, you know, and, and what's more important to you. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with training trick behaviors and stuff like that. Um, but maybe they're not your biggest priority, especially if you've got a dog that is struggling, you know, with some of the health checks and stuff. Well, well definitely. Exactly. So, but yeah, as you say, it's just a priority thing. And, and to be honest, you know, it's going to help your training regardless if you would train medical first or if you would train the, the funny behaviors first. The whole idea is, is that if the animal starts to understand the system you pull it through, training medical will be a lot easier because the animal understands how the learning curve works already. Yeah, it just uh, you just reminded me as well um, of Shirak Patel's quote where he says that uh, husbandry training is his version of agility or, or obedience. Um, 
so that kind of seems relevant to to what we're talking about here but to go back a step as well you were talking about subcultures and how they can be quite um like inclusive so that's really interesting to me because i knew that there was a divide between the dog training world and the zoo training world so what you're saying is maybe training information isn't being shared as much as it should be even between the subcultures within the zoo training world well exactly and that's exactly it like we see uh for example we see with uh the elephant protective contacts they people use a lot of targeting and targeting and targeting while we in the marine mammal culture we use the targets to train in new behaviors but then we train the targets away almost right away to make sure the animal understands it on a signal and not on a target signal um so but in the elephant world you keep the targets in there all the time and that's a ver- that part but if you just think about it is you know what why wouldn't you train targets away so um the animal starts to focus better so and that's what we did in our zoo as well where we focus on you know what let's get these targets away after the animal knows the behavior because what happens now is that the animal starts to listen to us look at us and pays more attention to us instead of to the targets and it, it, it seems to work perfectly well. What's actually, if you think about the theory, not a huge surprise, really. That's really interesting. So what are they using the target training for particularly? So most of the time they use the targets, you know, to, 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 to have certain body positions. So if you have a big fence in front of you, um, so you work protective contact, so the trainer is safe. You have one target for the head, for example, and one target for, for the hips, and you get them to line up. Or we use one target for the head, one target for the foot. So they put the foot through a small uh, hole in the in the PC wall, so to say. And they use the targets all the time. Uh, but instead of using those, what if we just use a signal? So you get your ABC more clear. So you use a signal, the behavior comes, you bridge, and uh, you get your consequence. And what happens now is that the animal does focus better to you and your motivation does go up even further ah that's really interesting because definitely in the dog training world you know we don't i guess targeting isn't such a big thing in the dog training world although of course it does exist what's bigger in the dog training world is luring but the principle is quite similar i guess and you know what you're always taught as a dog trainer is to try and get rid of the lure as quickly as possible Right. Yeah. So what we so what we do in the zoo, and that's what I'm trying to do in the classes that I, I present in the zoo as well, because we have a full course here where I talk about, you know, it's yes, luring and baiting. Yes, it does work. And yes, sometimes you want to use it for animals who are scared or, or um, pushing them through that step. That's a challenge for them. Uh, of course, we can use it. But the only thing is that we should not hang on to it. And if you don't have to use it, don't use it. So because the the whole point is we had eventually uh, some animals being trained for blood samples, but then the person keeps on feeding the animal nonstop, nonstop. So the animal is so focused on the food that you might wonder, does the animal even know that there's a needle in its neck? And then it's like, you know what, what if it discovers there's a needle in its neck? It will probably freak out. So, and that's where we try to be like, you know what, Keep your ABC in. So I'm asking uh, uh, the, the behavior by a signal if that's at the start of target or not. I'm showing what I'm going to do. And with small steps, I reinforce it. 
and that's how I built my steps up without using the learning. So yeah, it, it, in dog training, we I don't know if you use the same terms because I know the terms can be different, but we call that overshadowing, where you have uh, you're giving the animal so many rewards or such a high uh, value of reward that the dog isn't really paying attention to what's going on and that can be a real problem when you're trying to socialize an animal um this may be a little bit nervous and you're just feeding it feeding it feeding it and actually it isn't learning to be okay in the situation it's just becoming so distracted by the treats or we call it overshadowing over the treats are overshadowing the experience right yeah and that's what that's what we talk about here as well so that's why i think you know uh, one of the challenges that I have here is that that and that comes kind of down to this is um, so here in Sweden where I am based in Sweden they obviously speak Swedish and their second language is English. So what happens now is if I use the the, the terms the scientific terms I will kind of lose them. So the only thing what we are talking about now is if the animal understands that it has to do something and then a consequence will follow then basically you're good. If the animal doesn't understand that part, yeah, there's like a very hard time for the trainer to teach the animal something. If it doesn't understand, I need to do something to be able to receive a consequence. And if I explain it that way, people start to understand it better and better. And then slowly that whole baiting kind of goes away. Um, mm. for example one of the cool things is that we did too is we have a birds of prey show and we fly our birds in the uh, completely free in the forest so uh, we took the jessies up I'm not sure if you're familiar with the jessies uh, yeah the, the, aren't they the little leather things that exactly kind of hang off yeah yeah I, I sound so so silly I really don't know uh, all these things but yeah that's okay this, that's why you, that's why you're here Pierre yeah. <laughs> no, you so you have the jessies, and, and, and they, they hold the bird on their arms, and they hold the jessies so the animal basically can't fly away. So we decided to take all the jessies off. So we have 90% of our birds are um, not on jessies anymore. So And what we did as well, we took the baiting away. So instead of having the second person, so the person who is on the B point, so to say, so on the, the, the stationing in front of the bird, of meat on there what means come here and eat it instead of doing this we say you know what the person who holds the bird on the arm without the jessies gives the signal to go the animal goes and if it responds now we respond with the consequence so the animal will not know what it will get until it responds properly on the signal and what happens now is that the birds start to learn the system of doing something receiving something and not there is something and I will get it. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting because that's always... Uh, I've always found that interesting when I've watched falconry displays and stuff. They seem so reliant on kind of bribing the animal, right? Showing it that you've got food and instead of using that kind of reward system. And I, I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that when you read about falconry, it seems like people lose their birds on quite a regular basis. You know, whether the bird's just kind of set up the tree and doesn't want to come down right. or whatnot. And, and how... If they, if you switch from bribing to rewarding, whether that will make any difference, right? So, but that that's a little bit of the thing, and that's why. So, my theory on this is, and this is a very personal opinion, what I what I try to spread out in the zoo is, you know, if the bird doesn't come back, it has a motivation to not come back. So, you better be the motivation to be back. 
How can you do this? This is, and this is the idea. If I'm showing you already what I have, now I give you a choice with, huh, I see you have that thing. Do I actually want it or shall I stay? And I don't really want it. But if I do not show you what I have, but you know that I have something, you will probably come down out of the curiosity of wanting to know what I have. You see? So, and that's what we're trying to do in the zoo too. You know, we fly the birds. They do not know what they will get. Um, they will get an, an, a piece of meat, but if that's rat, um, a rabbit or, or, or mouse, they do not know. They do not know what body part of that it is. They will also not know the amount. And what happens now is that the motivation goes further up because they do not know, but they know it's good. So the theory is now that the animal will stay because of this curiosity. Yeah, that's really interesting as well, because I know with falconry and stuff, the weight of the bird can be very important when you're doing the bribing. Do you find that it's still important when you're using the rewards or that you can keep the birds heavier? So this is very hard for me to to uh, to explain this, because therefore you have to be with our team, because there are a lot more... Um, into that part but you know i heard that some birds they do perfectly well when they are um almost at their maximum of their food uh, they will do do very well in flying too uh, what you see a lot in the bird world is that you have fasting days so one day they will fly the next day they will not do anything because their bodies are built that way so I do believe that weight management is not necessarily a bad thing with all of our animals, like we do with our marine mammals as well, where we have a, a tight base, what they should get, um, uh, just for their own sake, and we put them on the scale every every week, and we just see how much they weigh, uh, the birds of prey, they do it every day just to keep track of it, but, you know, weight management in general, I think it's it, it's a it's a bad thing to do because it's a, a, the second check if your animal is actually healthy enough to um, to be with you. So we do not. I don't see necessarily a, a, a big difference. But um, um, the best people to ask is our uh, birds of prey team, really. Yeah, sure. So we kind of um, got speaking because I shared the lion training video. When I tr shared that video, I wasn't expecting it to kind of go as viral as it did. Like so many people were liking it and commenting and there were so many different questions. And I think a lot of people were kind of fascinated by this idea that you can recall lions in the, in what looks like a very similar way to we do with dogs, you know, with the whistle training. Right. Um, like, you know, what can you tell us about that process of, of training the lions to recall? So... We started, I think it was in 2015, and the funny part was is that I did an, uh, a presentation in Lund, and that's a city in the far south of Sweden, and uh, a, a, a student city. And I did a presentation about motivation in animals and how we do that with marine mammals and such. So um, eventually, um, I was with a friend of mine, uh, Stefan, and he asked me some questions because he came from the same zoo and we drove up there together because he was interested in those presentations. He worked with the lions back then and he says, well, Peter, do you think we can do this with our lions? I was like, okay. So from that question, we had a six-hour talk on the way back home about how to do it. Wow. So and then we said, you know what? 
let's just sit down and make a plan because to do that we need to know a little bit more information now what came out was that our lions as as you heard in the video they eat uh, once in like five to eight days so so i said you know if we want to have that recall strong we might need to tear down the diet plan first because we need practices and practice once a week might not be enough um then what we did, we looked at the routines the keepers have in a day. And then we discovered, you know what, every day at 4 o'clock, they call the animals inside. So our exhibit is like five acres, like, like it's mentioned in the video. So, And then we looked at, you know, how long does it take for these animals to come inside? And it took them about half an hour. And then we looked at, you know, but do the animals actually understand to do something and then they will get something. And the animals didn't really understand this yet, neither. So the only thing that we had to do is, you know what, we're going to call them in. Um, after half an hour, okay, they come in, we prepare the indoor exhibit, and the next day we won already 20 minutes because they started to discover, hey, <laughs> there might be something inside. <laughs> so, uh -huh. and then we decided to tighten this, this criteria up first. So what we did now was, you know, um, how big that exhibit is, what is fair to the animals to do. So we wanted to have it in 30 seconds, and then we thought, you know what, one minute is fair enough for a five-acre exhibit, especially if they are in the far corner. So then we decided, you know what, let's, let's tighten up that criteria to uh, one minute. But what we kept on doing is change the indoor exhibit all the time, so it would never be the same reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Then we put a signal to it, what is the soccer whistle, so instead of um, uh, calling them with our with our voices, we used a soccer whistle as the signal. But then the tricky part came because this routine was based on the four o'clock every day. So now we had to train them. We should be able to call you in at one o'clock in the afternoon as well. So what we did was, you know what? Let's call them inside half an hour later. And the reason for this was that they will be waiting for us because it's past four o'clock. So that means that they will be inside within a minute already. So I'm successful, kind of the antecedent arrangement there. So we were successful, and that worked out very well. So And then we decided, you know what, let's try 15 minutes before uh, 4 o'clock, see if that works out. And that worked out very well, too. And then we just build it down to an hour before, two hours before, till we could do it in the whole day. Then the next challenge was get back to the diet plan. So from using small pieces of meat, using ribs, we went back to, okay, we want to go back to five to eight days um, a carcass feed, and then we want to still be using this recall. So by this variation inside and in different places, we were able to do that. And still, as of today, we challenge them um, all the time when we would do a recall, and it still works perfectly well. So that's kind of a a run through how we train that uh, that recall with that whole group. So what happens if the lions don't come back within that w minute? So we call it the window of opportunity. So what we did, and we only had to do this once, we give you the signal. After one minute, we close the gates. So whoever stays outside stays outside. Whoever is inside stays inside. But then afterwards, you say, you know what? We wait for, for two or three minutes and we give the signal one more time. We will reinforce the animals inside again. We open the gates and the rest of the animals will run inside. So that only happened once. 
and this is uh, I, this is I think one and a half year ago when one of the males was a little bit um, a little bit too slow, but that problem is solved just because we gave them the window of opportunity. What I think is very important. Yeah, I, one of the reasons I like that video so much is because it's so similar to the way that um, I train dogs. I, I do the same thing with the whistle, um, but in my mind, I'm kind of deliberately um, having like a classical conditioning kind of effect, right? I blow the whistle and then I, I feed the dog instantly because I'm, well, it's a little bit different to the lions because I'm able to stand right next to the dog. So I can just blow the whistle, feed, blow the whistle, feed, blow the whistle, feed, and then I get a really nice association there. And then the recall is almost a byproduct because the dog knows that it's going to be rewarded um, at the sound of the whistle. Um, so I thought that that was a really nice parallel because it's very similar to what you were doing with the lions. Right. Yeah. So you know what? The funny part is now I go a little bit back into into my head. I remember that when I was working in France in the French Riviera at Marina, I had a roommate and she had a, a golden retriever. Um, I forgot the name, but um, she asked me a couple of times to walk the dog, and I decided to teach it a proper recall so I could walk it without the leash. So the the only thing I did was show up to the animal, give a signal, reinforce, and then I teach the animal to stay because teaching the dog to stay allows me to test my recall. So I would uh, teach the dog to stay in a range where the dog could see me, and then I would recall, and nonstop I would give a different type of reinforcement afterwards. Then eventually I would put um, the dog on the terrace where the dog couldn't see me. It would stay, I would give the recall, and the animal would <laughs> run like crazy inside. And then that was the moment I thought, you know what, I'm going to walk to the nearby forest, uh, so I walk it on the leash, and then I let her go, and then I'm just going to try it, and it worked perfectly well. So um, it, it definitely works with dogs the same way, I would say, as long, I do believe as long as the reinforcement is unpredictable for the animal, then you can go as far as you can. Mm. I, I It's really funny, you just reminded me of uh, when I was young with my Labrador and I was just kind of experimenting with training I would do a similar thing where I would put him in the stay and then I would practice the recalls and when I would put him in the stay I would get these amazing recalls every single time but then if I would try to call him when he was just running around I could never get him back and now with hindsight what I realized was I taught him this really uh, context specific kind of behavior chain where if he's put in the stay I basically taught him to recall from stay but not otherwise and it was just a really interesting thought for me um, yeah just an interesting uh, thought um, from one of my from my background right but yeah I guess sorry no I was just gonna say I guess that that's not something you would ever deal with in the, in a zoo because you're not putting an animal in a stay, I'm guessing? No. So how we would do it in the zoo or how we did it with the lions too is, you know, you start to challenge them because our recall was supposed to be and still is a recall. What what means that I need to I need to train scenarios so they start to understand the concept of whatever you're doing, come back inside. So Wherever we stay, where, whatever you're doing, wherever you hear that signal from, you have to run sometimes the opposite way of that signal to be able to go inside, really. So, um, therefore, we need to change the, the exhibit all the time. We, 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 we put um, 
um, uh, interesting smells everywhere. We, we put enrichment everywhere. We let them back outside so they, they see that there's uh, an <laughs> a motivational part in the exhibit. And then we're going to try one minute after. Let's call them away from it again. See if it works. And then that worked very, very well. And then as reinforcement, like I say, now go back outside again. And what happens now is that they start to understand that in any scenario... In any situation, when I hear that signal, I need to come inside. So that whole desensitization part and the variation with the stay as well and with them um, doing what they do allows us to uh, be more safe in, in the overall exhibit of, the, of these animals. So we see it with, with our dolphins too. It, we, we ask them upside down so they will show their tails above the water and then we'll slap the water as supposed to be a recall. We did it so many times in scenario that exactly like you say, if you do it so many times in the same behavior, they start to chain these things up. So they would respond perfectly well on a recall when we ask them for that behavior, but when I ask something else, they will not respond anymore because they just connected both. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most common questions when I shared that video was, you know, um, would they do it if, for example, someone was in the enclosure? Um, you know, if, if kind of, it's kind of fresh on, on our minds because we think about, you know, that video of like Harambe, the gorilla, and, you know, you do see videos online quite a lot where people have managed to either fall into the enclosure or get into the enclosure. So, I mean, obviously you haven't had a chance to test this, but how confident would you be that it would work under that kind of situation? Well, you know, luckily we didn't have to test it yet. So, But I'm fairly confident. Um, the only big problem is, and that's very much into the zoo world, the whole problem is you have to be sure, even if it's a 99% guarantee, there's still that 1% it potentially could not work. But if it cannot work, what is the aftermath of that 1%? And that's the hard mm. part. So at this point, uh, for example, we had some, we had two cool examples where what gave us a lot of trust in this behavior, and that is, um, that is, uh, once we had one of our cubs who was stuck in a branch in, on the fields, and they were busy with it for forty minutes. They went in with. G they looked at it, they tried anything and everything till a keeper said, "Let's just recall them in and see what happens." So you have like fairly stressed uh, stressed cubs you have a stressed mother walking around um, and you know what we asked that recall the, the, the cub wiggled itself out of the branch run inside like there was nothing wrong and 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 the problem was solved so uh, that's a good scenario to practice that recall in to see if they would even do it in such an arousal what they had at that point um, another scenario we had was uh, when we carcass fed them outside, they got like 150 to 200 kilos of meat. And this is the funny part because I read the comments on the video on your uh, webpage, Nick. And a lot of people said it's just a dinner bell. And the funny part is, is that if you have this story about the, the 150, 200 kilos of meat outside, they were eating like how lions can eat. And then you know, the, their bellies are full, and then we discover one of the females have, having uh, quite some blood in their neck. And we're like, you know, what are we going to do? It's already almost at the end of the day. They, they're going to slowly go into their, uh, how we call it, their food coma, so to say. Um, 
Uh-huh. And there was one person saying, you know, let's try that recall, see if, see if we can get them inside. And we did it. And believe it or not, they were inside in record time. So now we can say, hey, that whole uh, recall is a dinner bell. But if that's the case, why did they run inside then? You see? It, yeah, it, it, it aggravates me, to be honest, when I see those comments and I just kind of think how silly are they, how silly they are. I don't think they really understand... I think the people that leave those comments don't really understand like the ABCs of behavior you were talking about, you know, antecedent behavior consequence, because um, just because we're using food as a consequence doesn't mean that we're not teaching a behavior. And oftentimes when you get people criticizing uh, training videos like that, you know, those are people that haven't been able to have the success with their own dogs recalls. And, you know, you know, it's just madness, you know, I would rather have a dinner bell than nothing, <laughs> right? You right. know, a lot of these people haven't even got that. So to no, criticize right. that it's a, it's a dinner bell as if that's a bad thing is is madness because the fact you're using food as a reward doesn't mean that you haven't taught a recall. No, exactly. And and as you've said, you know, you've been able to, to um, have a variety in your rewards and we do that with dogs all the time, you know. You might not use food on every reward. You might use a tennis ball or a toy or, you know, you, you, you switch up the rewards. Right, right. So, yeah, right. it's, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Well, it is kind of crazy, you know, and, and that's exactly what you say. And that's the funny part. I don't know if you guys do that in the dog world too, but when we start to train such a recall, well, the first thing that we do is write down all the reinforcement options that we have, and the reinforcement op- options can also be: this time you will get, um, this time you will get this piece of meat, then you will get this one, or we can use this one, and only to vary between those three is already a big variation. So, um, let me tell you another small story about uh, other animals. Hoofstock is a whole different ball game because. They, in theory, they kind of eat all day long. So how am I going to get to motivate these hoofstock animals who are eating all day long to be able to respond the same way as these lions? And we, we have we have like eight mixed species exhibits here in our zoo, so to say. And, and those, the, the, they come with their challenges. And we have one of them is with, the Turkmenian Kulan, so those are the Asian wild asses who are with uh, the the, uh, the camels and they are with yaks. Um, but the, these these Kulans, these horses, they are like the dangerous ones over that whole whole exhibit. So we decided, you know, let's recall them away, so we are able to safely work the other animals. Um, uh, we also call them away because of the efficiency for our sake, for our day. So, and that's why we decided, you know, let's write down what options we have. Now, what we are trying to do in the zoo, too, is stay in the nutrition plan. Um, some animals work perfectly on bananas, but they actually don't eat bananas, and it's not good for them. So that's why uh, we will not add that into the reinforcement plan. So we make a full list. We see our options throughout the zoo, and then we're going to make the recall plan. And as of today... The, these animals, they run away from their own food source to come to the trainer to see what that person has. So even though they're eating the the, the hay, the, the ensilage, uh, or whatever they get, they will leave that to run to that person who gave that signal to receive what that trainer has. And it's actually very cool and remarkable to see. So what does the trainer have in that situation? Is it something different to what they were feeding on? 
Yes. So um, basically they eat all, I'm not saying all day long, but that's how I call it because it's an easy explanation. But uh, they, they graze, right? We, we tried it with when, when one of our tractors came by and, and they just throw a pile of, of, of fresh hay in the exhibit. We waited a minute. So now all the, all the culans, all the horses went to that big pile of hay starting to eat. And then we call them away from this where we use, uh, you know, you have um, um, these particular pallets that we use. We use, um, you have these uh, horse candy, it's called, what's not necessarily very very bad for horses, but still works very well uh, to reinforce them with. We can reinforce them with, with carrots, for example, what's also pretty all right. But just because of that change, uh, where we can mix these three up as well, and then the amount, um, the very stays in i don't know if you notice this in the zoo animals as well but it's something i've noticed with dogs is if you have more than one dog and you teach them a, a recall to a whistle or something like that then you also you all you almost get like a competition element you know where they want to be they want to get back first so they have more opportunity to eat more of the food right so one of the things and we, we we have this challenge non-stop, especially with the big big group of animals. But that's why if we call them, we observe if they actually all come. We reinforce the ones that are coming, and if they're all there, they get even more. So we teach them: look, if you're all together, you will get more than when you're alone here. So you better wait and not attack the rest for food dominance. How I want to call it. So, oh, see, okay, so that's that's interesting because, um, yeah, I hadn't realized. I guess you, the problem you're trying to solve there is them uh, hurting each other. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, see, I haven't had that with dog shit. What I normally say to people is, if you've got a dog that's likely to guard the food, then to give it to them to their mouths as opposed to scattering it on the floor. Right, right, right. And that's you know, I I could do it the same way as you explain it to me now. But the funny thing is, is that if I have if I have two or three animals and only one animal comes to me, depending on the reason why only that animal comes to me, I will reinforce it or not. If I discover that that animal that that um, that told the other animals, hey, you better stay in that corner, otherwise I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to come run to you. We will not reinforce that animal, for example, just because we don't want to take the chance of potentially that animal saying to the other two, you better stay there. So for mm. us, it's everybody comes or no reinforcement, depending on the exact situation. Oh, that's really interesting. I haven't heard of that. See, there you go. I'm learning a different way of doing it. That's that's really interesting with, yeah, trying to stop them from guarding each other. And, and the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, when... It's really interesting to get your take on that because, you know... Changing the topic a little bit, when you see um, like herds of sheep and stuff, the way that uh, like farmers and stuff will typically get them in is to have like a collie or something herd them in. Do you think that you could use similar techniques, even with livestock, even with cows and sheep and stuff, to get them to come to you and maybe go into an area without having to herd them in? Yeah. So, well, like look at our horses that recall. We do it with them. We have a recall for our giraffes now, too. We have here the Watusi cattle on our safari. They have a particular and they come running inside where we don't have to herd them anymore. So, herd, I have to say, not hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
it's possible. The only the only hard thing for people to understand is you have to put a lot of time in it first. But if it's if it's settled in, if the animals understand, you get that time back double. So for people to put that time and effort in there, they will say, "Ah, oh, we don't have time," or "Ah, oh, it takes too much effort." But on the long term, you will actually get double the amount of time back. So yeah. that's a little bit of the thing. But I'm sure, I'm hundred percent sure that it works the same with everybody and anybody. Mm. Yeah, because it must be much quicker for you to be able to give the animals a signal and get them all to run towards you as opposed to having to try and herd them all into one area. Well, definitely, for sure, definitely. Well, what You know what, what might be interesting too for you um, to get back to the group scenario... Um, and I'm not sure if the dog world is actually familiar with this as well. Maybe some of them. Um, you can make another dog the reinforcement for the other dog. If that makes sense. As in... So, yeah, so sometimes we we will call that like a life reward. So, for example, uh, when I do recalls, I'll get the dog... Um, if the, For example, if the dog wants to really, really wants to go and play with another dog, then I might do the recall. And then as part of the reward, I'll say, let uh, go on then. And then I'll let the dog go and say hello to the dog that it wanted to play with as part of the reward. Right. We call this pre principle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we use that term as well. Yeah. So, no, what I mean is, for example, if I have a, I have a dominant animal, most likely the dominant animal is going to try to get all the food of the submissive animal as well. It's going to chase it away or, or you name it all to potentially um, solve that issue. What I can teach the dominant one is, if you bring the submissive one, you'll get even more. And what happens now? Wow, this is so cool. <laughs> what happens now is that that social part becomes even stronger. So instead of wanting to chase it away, it wants that animal to come with them to be able to get even a bit a bigger reward, whatever the reward will be afterwards. And we do it a lot with, with, with marine mammals, especially with killer whales and dolphins, to say, okay, you know what? But if this animal you, you will get a higher reward than when you would work on your own. And then as t- on top of that, for the submissive one, when I wanted to separate both of them again, I'll send away the dominant animal instead of the submissive animal. And the reason for this is you never know if I send away the submissive animal that the dominant animal does something. So now all of a sudden it looks like the dominant one chased it away. That's why you always want to send the dominant one away as an extra reinforcement for both. Oh, this is, yeah, this is really interesting. I haven't heard of uh, that approach before. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned training horses and stuff there, and I know I get messages sometimes from people that are that have horses and are a little bit frustrated because some of the techniques that are very some te- some some of the people that are involved with horses are very traditional and it's still kind of got that culture and maybe hasn't embraced positive training in the same way that you have or you know um, some of the dog trainers have so yeah that kind of comes back to what what you were saying about subcultures and some of them still being a little bit more traditional and still kind of um, having to catch up a little bit. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool that you mentioned this because I'm I'm having a blog ready about horse training, really. So, I've, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> zoospensful.com. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
so <laughs> um, I, I I two people. One comes from Sweden, who I know throughout the zoo world, and the other lady I, I know throughout uh, uh, Ryan Cartledge's uh, Animal Training Academy, and they were able to help me out because I thought, you know what, I wrote a I wrote a piece about falconry before and how we work with it in the zoo. I thought, you know, let me talk, let me put a piece together about the horse training because the horses is also a specific culture and you know instead of talking about the frustrations and it doesn't work and all that stuff you know the only thing we have to do is focus on the consequence what do you do when they are good and what do you do when they are not good and a lot of people unfortunately are negative minded and that's a it almost seems like that that's a that that's a, a natural thing for people to do think very negative so we only focus on the bad things um a good example is is when i work with the ape team here with the gorillas and we ask them to to um to put the animals on the scale and one of the animals didn't really work out so eventually they came back w w with a little bit of hanging faces and i said Oh, and they said, ah, it didn't go well because this one animal didn't want to go. I say, but what about the rest? Yeah, yeah, they were fine. But this animal, I say, what are you guys talking about? You had like 75% success. Come on. It was perfect. So, and that's typical people. So, and it's the same thing in the horse world. It's the same thing. You know, um, well, you might know it better than me with, 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 with dog people. Uh, some, they just do not have the patience. And animal training comes all down to patience and consequences. Definitely. I think that a lot of us are kind of wired to be pessimistic. And also, as a kind of aside to that, you know, we see the same thing where, you know, you see people that are sharing all of the time um, things that they hate about dog, dog training or, you know, oh, this person uses these really cruel methods or this person has done this and I really don't like that. And instead of doing that, it will be so much more productive to share the stuff that you actually like and the stuff that you know you really do agree with and i was talking about that on my last last podcast and how frustrating that can be that it's you know that people put so much of a focus on the bad stuff and not such a big focus on sharing the stuff they actually really do like right yeah it, it's you know what uh, there's this one thing that i try to focus on here in the zoo as well and that's just catch them doing it correct that's all you have to do um the, the, way back how, how some dolphin shows were, were were made, there would be just a person sitting next to the environment and it would just blow its whistle and it saw something good. It would blow its whistle, throw reinforcement, and eventually he had animals jumping in the air just by catch them doing it right. And sometimes we forget that sometimes, but it's also with... We see it with the young trainers in our zoo too. Um, a lot things come down to that the people do not have enough tools in their training toolbox so they get frustrated because they do not know how to respond properly their day didn't go well and then eventually the animal has to pay and that's the the the, the that's basically don't shoot the dog for you <laughs> yeah absolutely that's that's capturing isn't exactly. it exactly capturing and scanning and that's and that's that's the whole thing so if you just catch them doing it right, then, to be honest, 80% of your problems will not be there anymore because you shape the animals to the point with what you want them to think is right. So, One of the things that I saw you writing about, which I thought was really interesting, is and also is going to apply to people because I'm sure that there are 
you know, some people that are listening to this that will be really interested in how do they get involved with training zoo animals and kind of taking a similar career path to you. And I saw that you write, you wrote a little bit about that, and I was wondering if you could kind of share how people can get into your industry. You know, it's I get sometimes a request about people who want to get into this type of industry, like the zoo industry itself. Um, it's very tough, especially with the job that I have today. I think, to be honest, there are not so many in Europe who have the job that I do. But um, what I'm always trying to do is everybody is trying to do their best. So if I look at their sessions, if I look at their training, if I if I see how they can excel into this, um, I think a very open mind is very important and a very unjudgmental mindset, really, and that will, will get you very far. Um, what I think, too, and that's also what I say to some schools that pass by in our zoo is, you want to be the best there is, but the best in a very open-minded uh, um, scenario. And if you have that, I think you can already come very far because people find it nice to be around you. And, and if people find it nice to be around you, it's more likely they will they will and want to learn from you. So those are, those are kind of like tiny tips that, that, that I discovered are important to, to get in such a job that I have. I heard you... Um, talk about before that um, there's a lot of value in, um, you know, if you want to pursue this kind of job in training the animals that you have access to and also in trying to train animals that are unusual that maybe people haven't thought about training before. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I find it. And that's where where uh, where I mentioned those cultures that I'm, I'm always challenging myself. And the thing is, like, for example, if, if I would have a dog and I would be like, you know what, I, I want to become the, this this great trainer, I might not want to share a video where I teach my dog to sit, for example, because people are going to be like, yeah, everybody does these things. But if I teach my dog, for example, to do uh, 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 blood samples are, for example, very unique in, in the dog world, it seems like, then all of a sudden people become interested in, wow, that's actually possible. You know, those things, that's what I, what, what makes you stand out in, in this whole training world, you know, to, to, to break the, the normal habits, really. And that's what I, I try to do too. And that's why we had that, the recall with the lions here. And then the, I don't know if you saw the video of our chimpanzees who on one signal separate themselves in subgroups, for example, was very, I think, unique as well for, for, for big group management. So that's kind of a way that you can make yourself unique compared to anybody else, what I think is very important. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's going to uh, help, you know, if, if you are trying to uh, break into this industry, if you're doing stuff that uh, maybe, you know, it, that does stand out, then that's going to help, you know, when you're trying to uh, get a job or just make connections. And yeah, we, and well, the fact that the Lion video was so popular you know shows that you're doing that very successfully and you were talking about dogs uh taking blood samples from dogs and uh one of our another one of our most popular videos was when we trained um our little dog to do exactly that so it's funny that you mentioned that because um well we did exactly that and and one of the things that i'm working on at the moment or you know i really want to um do is one of my other hobbies away from dog training is uh, keeping reptiles, particularly snakes. I'm very interested in snakes. Um, 
and I really want to do some snake training. So for the last week, I've been reading all of the papers on snake training because it's a very unique uh, thing to do because you have the same problem that you had with the lions in that naturally their feeding uh, regime is very irregular. So you don't uh, get the same opportunity to get repetitions in. So that's the that's the challenge there. But I think that would be a really cool thing to do and it's something that I'm uh, working on at the moment. Yeah, that's great. And that's why, you know, the other day I thought about if I would have more time, I would actually try to get a dog as well and I could give it the proper care. And then I would just, you know, let me just train all the medical behaviors just to, to show, like, people, look, it's actually possible instead of... Um, um, instead of just walking them and them being afraid of the of the vet at the end you know so it's pretty cool that you actually did that i would love to share that video actually i'll send it to you um but we were very inspired i mentioned him earlier by shirak patel who i know is involved in both the zoo world and the dog world so that's you know that that shows the crossover that is being made from you know there are people that are involved in the dog world that are taking inspiration from the zoo world, whether that's indirectly or directly, you know, because we were inspired by Shirag um, to really get into this husbandry stuff. Right. It's very cool. I talked to him in San Diego when we had the Aymada conference uh, up there. You see, they, I don't know if you're familiar with the Aymada conference. It's the International Marine Animal Trainers Association. Um, this year, we're going to be uh, having our annual conference in uh, Portugal. So uh, you should come, Nick, if you if you have a uh, excellent if if you have time. But yeah, so sounds like a good holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very good place. I've been there, and I thought, wow, okay. Um, but you know what? It's it's marine mammals, yes. But because the science is the same, um, apply all these ideas with every animal at the end of the story, even with your snakes, if you find the motivational trick. So, and, you know, and that's another topic that, that, that I would like to mention, because in the zoo world, a lot of people say, ah, but that's what you do with dolphins. And it's like, well, wait, the science is the same people. We do this with dolphins for years, but it doesn't mean you can't do it with a giraffe. That means that you can't do it with a dog or you name it all, because it's, it's been proven by people over and over again. You know, so, but yeah, I, I, I would like to, to, to invite everybody who will listen to this podcast to come to that conference because it's another animal training conference and, and it's about zoo animals and marine mammals. So if you're interested, it's from the 14th to the 19th of October in Albufeira in Zoo Marine in Portugal. Perfect. That sounds brilliant. And, and if people want to find out more about you, Peter, where can they find that information um yeah you can always go to my website zoospensful.com where uh, i'm trying to blog every week about a particular topic and ask myself the why questions about um different techniques so that's where you can find more information oh there's also my biography oh there's also my email address so if people have further questions they can always email us at um zoospensful.com if they want to get in contact Excellent. All right, thanks, Peter. That's that's brilliant. Great to talk to you. No problem at all. Have a great day. You too.